What's up, you dirtbags? My name is Luke Agabrotten. We are back in studio with my fellow dirtbag, Mr. Luke Payne. Cheers, brother. As you can see, I broke my dry January. I broke it like January 5th. Yeah, I, went- I, uh, I was going to wait till we started the podcast to say something about that. And I figured it's just one of those bush light can koozies. Like and you're actually hiding, hiding like an apple juice in there, but... Yeah, no, I went out. I was actually meeting with the owner of that plumbing company that we're looking to purchase and yep. dialing some things in. And, you know, it, we were there for probably five and a half hours. And he's like, we need a beer at some point, Luke. And I told him and I was like, I told my wife I was doing dry January. He kind of looks at me and he goes, you need a beer. I was like, yeah, twist my arm. I'm in. <laughs> and so we had a couple, played a little blackjack and it was a good time. Oh, you played blackjack? I wasn't very happy though. Oh yeah, of course. But so is that something we're able to touch on a little bit is uh, like, how is all that going? Um, it's going, I don't know if I can name names on anything yeah. yet. I, we, we met for lunch and then we met again. I've signed an NDA. We've talked about a lot of like, what is to come, what's expected. You know, him and I really touched on company dynamics. We talked about just a whole bunch of different things. I actually, excuse me, reached out to James Sachs. Saskma, Saskma, however, Stixma? yeah, Stixma. Um, and he sent me his list of questions that he had for when he yeah. acquired. So that was very helpful. So shout yeah. out. To James. Yeah. James is awesome. I mean, he just, that podcast we recorded with him is really cool to see his process of, you know, he, what business should I buy? And it could be any business, but it's, it's got to have a certain, um, you know, a certain aspect that he's looking for, you know, it's got to yep. make money and he's got to be able to come in and, and uh, revitalize it. So um, that episode was one of my favorites and a big reason why I'm super excited for this one today. Uh, we have a, a very, very special guest, um, over $1.2 billion in acquisitions. Uh, we've got our good friend, um, CEO, president, all the above, Mr. Sean Bonington. How are we doing, man? Doing great. Also engaging in a dry January, but not on bush lattes. For me, it was sugar. So I'm holding, holding strong. I saw a statistic that 70% of New Year's resolutions fail by the second Friday in January. So that's my watershed moment right there. If I can get through Friday with no sugar, then <clears throat> I guess that's success and I can fail after that. But uh, what's your, uh, Sean, what's your go to? Really rubbing sugar. that in, Sean. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> What'd you say, Luke? Sorry, I interrupted you. What's your uh, what's your go-to? What's your guilty uh, sugar? Definitely pilfering the kids' Halloween candy. Whatever it is, there's the dad tax. As long as it, as long as there's chocolate in there, there is a separate bucket that is kids' approved candy, and then you've got dad's taxed candy, which is all the chocolate. There you go. I'm a big Reese's guy myself, so there you go. There we go. Hell yeah. Uh, So Sean, um, we kind of touched on it in the intro a little bit, but you are a startup phenom. I mean, you seem just with talking with you and getting to know you, uh, you've done so much and you seem to move so quickly. Um, but I know you've learned a ton. So we're Luke and I are excited to dive into it here. Um, if you don't mind, you know, let's start with Visologics where we are present day. Uh, and then we can kind of backtrack and, you know, figure out how we got to this point. So Visologics, the company, uh, you're in Tampa, Florida right now. 
where are we and how are we connecting uh, the industry here? Fun story, Visologics was a, was a boardroom meeting about ideas and underutilized products after the successful acquisition and exit from Fetch Robotics. Every time after an acquisition, you're excited, you've closed the deal, and then you kind of look around the room, you go, well, what the hell am I going to do now? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, something that I really reinstill with everybody I get the chance to work with, come into contact with, is the subtle reminder that the job you have today isn't going to be the last job you have in your life. And for some people, that's a really revelatory moment. And you got to start thinking about your future self and what are you doing today to help support that future individual that is essentially yourself, but it's you that's reaping the rewards of the investment that you in the present moment made. And you know, startups give you that very unique opportunity where if you focus on expanding your abilities, accessing knowledge, building mentorships, you really get this innate value of taking away not just the compensation you make for whatever your role is, but also something that can't be extracted or taken away from you at any point. And that's this vast knowledge base that, that you collect. So you know, kind of understanding that you're looking around the room, you don't know what the hell you're going to do next. You just closed, everything's exciting. And then it's the reality of, well, that wasn't the last job I'm going to have. I really enjoyed doing this. What's next? And got together in a boardroom with a couple other industry leaders that had some ideas and had some products that they'd thought about or kind of coded, but weren't really in the market, hadn't found commercial success. And what we realized was that with the right team, there's a huge market out there for it. And the technology itself had a lot of IP opportunities around it. And for me, I think if there's one of the more important lessons I've, I've learned throughout my 20 year journey through startups is if, if you're an employee interested in joining a startup, if you're an individual with great ideas and you're thinking you've got something and you want to create around it, can you answer the three basic legs of what a startup stool stands on? If you have the right team, can you take it to market and succeed? Does the product, number one, does it defy the laws of physics? If it doesn't, well, great. You've kind of passed through the first phase gate. Yeah, it doesn't defy the laws of physics. We can build this. Can you create IP around it? Just because you have a great idea doesn't mean there aren't already products in the market. So if you can check those boxes, you build a great team, you build a great product, and then does it have a market? Does it actually solve a problem that people would pay for? If you can answer yes, well, then it's a pretty exciting first endeavor to say, now we just got to go and build it and, and scale an organization. And I realized that in that room that day is there's something very tangible here. Now we got to go through the hard steps of actually building it, scaling it, marketing it, taking it to market. And that happened for about four years ago. So from that stage, it was myself and here we are today and we're close to 30 employees. We have just over a hundred customers. We've gone through two acquisitions ourselves. So organic growth within the products that we started with, and then some inorganic growth by recognizing, you know, it would be faster for us to pull products in that were somewhat in the market. 
and start working on integrated product relationship between those to help scale our growth and expedite that growth. So in, I hate to say four short years because it's been four years of late nights, weekend yeah. work, all the stress that comes along with making sure that everybody's paychecks cash on Fridays. You've got work for people in a month and six months. You're keeping your customers happy. You're keeping investors happy. So it's been four short years, but it's been a heck of a ride to get, I guess, to this podcast today and, and where we're at here over the next you know, three months or so. Yeah. So I'm so curious with that too. When you talk about you, you just had an acquisition, I'm assuming every, you know, everyone involved, you know, you get paid and then you sit there and you're like, well, I'm not done working. I'm not done challenging myself here. But then as you're talking about Visilogics and the four short years, but four long years of what's been going on. And, uh, do you ever, did you ever think like, maybe this wasn't a great idea or maybe I should have just gone a different route when you're trying to make payroll and, you know, set other people up for success or what, what, what were your thoughts there? Have you ever had any doubts? I've only ever doubted if our messaging was strong enough to convey yeah. the value to the customers. And I, I don't say that lightly because it, I think that may potentially come across with, with some level of, of overconfidence. But I think if you do your research up front and you really have an understanding of the market, gaps in, in what products are available today, then you know what you've built is right. But it doesn't always mean that you're finding the people that can use the products effectively at a cost that allows you to keep the doors open. So there absolutely have been moments where I've recognized that <clears throat> I think our messaging was wrong. When we get in front of customers, the value proposition is immediate. Man, you guys have got really great solution. There's nothing else out there like it. Where have you guys been? Well, that's kind of like an oh shit moment. Well, we've yeah. been here for four years and you guys have been here for much longer, but why did it take us so long to find you? Yeah. That's the biggest challenge I think for all startups is identifying those those marketing channels that effectively work at a cost-effective point. And I know we're getting much better at that. And that's really exciting to now see the reward delivered back to the sales reps that have been here since the beginning and have just wanted to lead. And the product team that's built great products and just wanted to hear a customer say, man, you really saved my butt. You've built a great product. Our customer support reps that wanted to hear a customer say, thank you. You helped me out through training or I had a bug and you fixed it. So for me, that that marketing aspect of a company's products and the value and where do, where do you find those customers is so critical to long-term success and being there now uh, it, it validates a lot of those early to your point, not concerns. Did we build the right thing, but how the heck are we going to get it out to a market that's so large and uh, <clears throat> man, it's damn exciting. Now you've got people coming to the website and asking for demos and, you go to a trade show and people know who your product is and who your company is. That's, that's the validation of those long walks where you kind of sit there and chat with your wife about, I don't know when it's going to take off. Maybe two years, maybe 10 years. We got it. We got something here, but man, we got to get smart or else we're, we're in for a much longer trip than, than what I signed you up for. Absolutely. To that point, Sean, just kind of curious, 
from like my own head, I'm trying to relate this on like my industry, right? Or, you know, the smaller excavation companies industry. And the question that I have is how do you know someone or how do you know that someone will pay for a product? I, you know, just looking like kind of above things and I see a lot of people start companies and there might not be like a demand for it, but they try to make a demand, you know, from your aspect, how, how do you, how do you find that product? How do you know, like, Hey, this is a really good idea. Starting an excavation company sounds like a great idea, you know, but then you do it and then you're like, Oh shit. You know, there's, there's 50 other excavation companies within a 20 mile radius. Yeah. Yeah. There's Keywood out there with 5,000 machines and they can come in and undercut the price. That's tough. Yep. So, Man, I, I wish there was a silver bullet that I said, all right, Luke, do this. And you can just start any company you want. Mm -hmm. There's some nuance that I've found where it's understanding the market itself. So very infrequently do individuals start businesses where they're not subject matter experts. It's usually individuals that identify a problem. They go to try to find a solution and then a solution doesn't exist. And then they start doing a little bit of research, have a conversation with a couple peers and say, is this a product? Is this, is this something? And I think that's step one is usually you emerge with a product or a company based off of your knowledge of the industry. And then from there, what you typically want to do is, is go out and do a little bit more of that market research before you dive into the deep end and cash in your 401k or go out and borrow money from a bank or pull in friends and family investment, go out and talk to potential customers. Wouldn't talk to competitors, talk to potential customers. Hey, if it is moving dirt, how many bids do you typically get for the pre-phase planning really stage of just leveling the site? Do you get two, do you get 10? Because if you get 10, that might be tough. Then now we're, now we're bidding based on price, not on capabilities. If it's two, I think that's a good indicator that there's a market available for more competition. That, that customer-based market research is really where I found the success. And I didn't come up with it. I learned that from one of my mentors. He shared a, a story, and I, and I love this one. I, I probably told it a hundred times. Uh, back to my Zonar Systems days, there were five, in, five guys that, that came together and, and started a company that eventually was sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the first 30 or so employees there. And I got a real unique chance to connect with them and develop mentorships. And they had mentors as well. And the whole idea behind Zonar was a handheld RFID reader that would read quarter-sized RFID chips that would be placed around a piece of equipment or around a truck to enforce that pre-trip inspection. That pre-trip inspection is a compliance requirement. FMCSA, DOT, MSHA, OSHA require you to walk around and do an inspection. But it was never verified. It was always a paper process. It was always paper whipped, if it was even done. So this tool was novel in its concept. There was nothing out there like it. And it forced an operator to pick up this handheld RFID reader, scan a tag. And when they scan the tag, there would be a drop-down menu of items that they needed to check when they were in that specific area of that specific type of truck or machine. That was what the product became. Before the product started, it was a hand-carved wooden tool that a Freightliner truck sales rep came up with. And 
he ran into a couple guys randomly at a barbecue that had some business experience. One of them had a connection with a couple guys that were electrical engineers and software developers. So they brought their group together. They didn't have any money, but they knew they had, they thought they had a great idea. Electrical engineer, software developer of that five, he, his mentor had started a company called ZTech that he sold for hundreds of millions of dollars himself. So Mike McQuaid, the individual that started Zonar with his four partners, he took that mentor of his out to breakfast. He said, all right, Clyde, I think we got an idea. Here's what it is. Here's this prototype wooden carved out RFID reader. What do you think? He said, Mike, give me 24 hours. 24 hours, he comes back. They sit back down for breakfast. Maybe it was 48. Sometimes you embellish stories that are handed down at from 15 years ago, maybe he gave him two days. He comes back together and he says, here's what I did. After you left, I stayed at this restaurant and I went and I talked to truck drivers and I, and I explained to them what you explained to me. And I talked to a lot of them. Every single one of them said, if we had that product, we would buy it and everybody would use it. If it complied with the federal government and it eliminated paper, we would buy it. He said, Mike, I've got something for you. He slid over a check. He said, call me tomorrow and tell me how much I bought. Mike flipped the check over and it was a million dollars. That was the seed capital to start what turned into a couple hundred million dollar acquisition. And it all started with very basic market research. Talk to the people that could buy the product, not the business experts, not the venture capitalists, not the banks, they don't have a vested interest in the product succeeding or failing because eventually they're going to get either the company if it fails or they're going to get their money back with interest. Talk to the people that could use it. Understand if your idea has a market and if it does, for me, that's the validation necessary to at least go into the next steps of what's the market size? How big do we want to be? We want to be an excavation company. Do we just want to stick within 50 miles? Do we want to go to 500 miles? How far out could our reach be? And what's the market opportunity? Can we move more than dirt for just civil projects? Can we do commercial projects? And doesn't matter the, the market, the product. To me, those are the first key steps in understanding, should we build it and put our life savings into it, our reputation? And if you can't answer those, the team, the product, the technology, talk to some customers about it. Probably not worth the next five to 10 years of your life. 100%. Yeah, great advice Luke, there. Luke, I feel like this reminds me of when you and Cole started uh, Western Excavation because it was that market research of, was it Cole or you that first brought it up? I think it was Cole, right? It was Cole. Yeah, and just understanding like the competition and understanding the supply and demand and what is out there and then understanding the logistics of how you can make that work. I mean, you just had to do your market research before diving headfirst into it because if it was somewhere else and you looked and yeah, there's 10 companies bidding on the job and there's just too many companies, um, you probably wouldn't have done it. Well, I'll be honest. I don't think we had more than a month of, you know, market research into it. I think honestly, we got very, very lucky and it was all based on timing. So I can't say there was a process to that, but Sean, thank you for that. Great. You know, the tactic seems so simple, but you do not see it implemented often in the business world, I feel like. And, you know, using my industry as an example, 
everybody thinks it's cool to start an excavation company. Oh, I'm going to go buy machines. I'm going to look badass. It's going to be super fun. And then in the first, you know, one to three years, they're gone. So hearing hey, that I, process I, is cool. I get it. Operating heavy machinery is a, is a pretty kick-ass way to earn a living. And if you can sit behind a dozer, an excavator, or a haul truck every single day and, and own your own destiny, it's a pretty appealing yeah. uh, option. Yep. Well, and, you know, Luke, to that point, you know, think about how many questions we get of like, hey, I want to start this company. What do you guys think? By implementing what Sean just said, you're going to give yourself a very good idea if it should happen or not. Yeah. And every single market is different. I mean, because Luke, you and I don't have the answers and that's why we're very careful about telling people how to do certain things because mm -hmm. uh, people handle debt differently. People handle their customers differently. And so uh, they, a lot of it, you can provide them a framework maybe uh, to work within, but at the end of the day, they have to uh, go out and do it and then figure out those answers themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Make your, I mean, people have to make their own decisions. It's like Sean had mentioned, there's great to get involvement with mentors. And that's something that I know I have to do better on. Um, Sean, you had mentioned kind of in our talk before the podcast, you were a mentor collector. Yeah. What do you, how, what do you look for in your mentors? It's interesting that, uh, I don't know, I've never really been asked that before, but Everywhere I've gone, I, I think I can start to categorize this archetype of what each of these mentors is. And I think for me, there, there's clearly some correlation between enjoyment of the conversation and extracting knowledge from them. But I think their personality type also matches the fulfillment of sharing the knowledge that they've built up. I have a, a massive whiteboard on here in my office and it's, it's just jotted down with notes from our little league team strategy that I manage all the way up through our forecast models for this year. And also on there is, is a quote that I love to really reinforce with myself. And it, it goes that the meaning of life is, is to find your, your gift and the purpose of life is to give it away and <clears throat> for me that i learned that 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 kind of concept of, of giving giving back and and not giving people a, a, a hand but giving people a, a hand up and kind of lifting them up along the process uh, my, i'd say my first mentor was was my dad he, he owned a, a construction company so for me the first time i asked for allowance it was all right great we'll get the tool belt on and you'll be to work tomorrow and and that is exactly how it went. And one of the thing I can always remember for him is he always just say, let's get cracking every single morning. Let's get cracking. Let's start cracking wood. Let's start cracking nails. Let's start cracking of the machines. And for me, that, that was that reinforcement of the work ethic that we started at six 30 and you ended probably four 30 or five. And it's just time to get cracking. There is no breaks. There's no time off. You just got a job to do and, and you got to wake up every morning and do it. Uh, but no, from there, what the value for me, and I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, if there's anybody listening out there that has trepidation around a startup because there is no guarantee. This is not a, it's not a big Fortune 500 company. This is not a well-established revenue stream. This is you 
understanding the value of what a startup truly offers <clears throat> and its knowledge. It's, it's exposure and it's access to roles at companies that maybe you're not qualified for, but you get to learn really fast because the company doesn't have other thousand employees and handbooks to refer back to middle-level management to tell you what to do or what not to do. You really get an opportunity to grow and expand rapidly at startups. But more importantly than that, if it's the right startup, you're given access to the executive team, whether that's the CFO, if you're interested in finance, the chief digital officers or chief technology officer, if you're leaning towards product management or development, day-to-day -day almost conversations that you're provided access to. And if it's the right leader and you approach them with the right attitude, they're going to open up a lot of information that would take you an MBA, a PhD, or a stop with one of the big uh, consulting firms to learn. And that's how to build a business, how to scale a business, how to treat employees the right way to where they're excited to go to work. And those are the guys that I found uh, outside of the family business at Zonar Systems is a guy named Mike McQuaid, one of the original founders, the guy that got that checks passed across the table to him. And what he was able to do for me was, was give me access to the executive suite. And from there, built relationships with the other, uh, with the CEO and the CTO. And then that helped me learn. And then that benefited me. I was able to propel up into you know, vice president roles, take on responsibility that I, you, know, you got to learn quick. You got to learn on the job and you have to learn about budgeting and forecasting and building out financial models, making the company exciting for investors. And Mike was, and still is, he's an advisor now for us. So we've come full circle. He was, a, he was a mentor to me and now he's a commercial advisor for us after he had a very successful exit from Zonar. And still he woke up and said, well, I guess that wasn't the last job I'm ever going to have. What am I going to do yeah. next? Now he's back with us. And at Fetrobotics, it was uh, a guy named Carl Showalter. And, and he shares a lot of the same quality and of, of personality that, that Mike does in that he's not just going to give you the wealth of knowledge, but if you ask for it and you show the drive and the compassion to learn, he will open up and help you understand how to build a little bit of a different business. And Carl came from the venture capital world. So even though he was in a COO position of daily operational executive leadership, his real forte was funding. All right, you dirtbags, we're going to take a quick break to thank one of our sponsors, Lambert Insurance Services. If you know Luke and I, you know we started this podcast to provide value to the construction industry. When we went to seek out an insurance company to work with, there's not a whole lot that are specific to the industry, and we really didn't want to work with a generalist agency, so we kind of put that on the back burner. Then we got to meet Sam Lambert. Sam is a fellow dirtbag himself. He's been in the industry for a long time, but he also started his insurance company in 2008 specifically for construction companies. So when we had that conversation, we knew that this would be the perfect match. Uh, so we started working with him and he's been incredible. He leads first. He wants to be a resource first and an insurance agency second. They can help with provide general liability, workers comp, commercial truck insurance, insurance for equipment, 
and so many more different avenues that he can provide coverage for. The great part about it is, you know, they're licensed in most states and they always quote through multiple companies. So that's how you know you can get a competitive rate. And even better, uh, Sam, he's the owner. He wanted to provide his cell number just so if you have any questions, specifically from the dirtbags, you can always text him, give him a call, ask to compare plans or just ask, you know, what his rates would be. And then he can help direct you to the right place or answer your question from there. His number is 385-204-5799. Or you can reach them at their website, which is lambert-ins.com. So reach out to him if you have any insurance questions. We're very excited about this partnership. Uh, Sam is an awesome guy and uh, we're just excited to continue providing value for all you dirtbags. So thank you, Lambert Insurance. Give him a text, shoot him a call, let him know that you're fans of the Dirtbags podcast. All right, you dirtbags. Are you tired of tedious manual data collection and costly field studies in your quarry or sand and gravel operations? Let's talk about Vantage Point, the first quarry operation software crafted to meet the high demands of modern data-driven quarrying. Seamlessly connect all of your equipment data and access the crucial information you need instantly. Be the hero of your operation by boosting efficiency, exceeding your productivity goals, and bottom line revenue with VantagePoint. Discover why four of the top six aggregate material producers in the U.S. are using VantagePoint. Visit vantagepointquarry.com dirt to learn more. So to be able to, to learn from somebody who had run their own venture fund, started 10 to 15 companies, seen multiple successful exits. If you listen and you ask and you're at the right startup, you're going to receive all of that knowledge that you get to take with you for the rest of your career. If you want to start your own company, we're better to learn than from individuals that have done it multiple times. If you don't want to open your own company, but you want to be a valued asset, you want to be a vice president, or you want to be in the C-suite, you don't have to go get an MBA. You don't have to go work for McKinsey or KPMG. You can find the right startup, buy into the culture, and learn from the executive team and, and find mentors. Don't, don't come to a startup and not try to identify a mentor right away. They're there. You just got to work your butt off, show that you bought in, and that's how you'll develop a, a great mentor. At least that's how I've done it. And John, you talk a lot about you know, your, uh, your mentors and who, you know, you work with, do you have anyone right now, any startup founders that you're mentoring? And, you know, so there's both sides of the coin there. That could be a really bad question if I didn't, but thankfully I do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no. This all this information I plug in is mine. I'm keeping it. I'm no. a kindergartner. I'm putting my arms around it. It's, it's just for me. Uh, I, I am actually. So right now I'm an advisor for a, a really great dynamic company called Aerovec Technologies. So it's a fully autonomous uh, luggage carrier company out of San Jose. So uh, two just incredibly smart guys in their mid to late 20s at this point, both graduated from Harvard, fortune under 30 guys. Uh, and Raymond and Eugenio have been building what is probably going to be a billion dollar company. They're, they're really the only ones that have figured out how to build fully autonomous tractors for luggage carriers. Every time you and me get on a flight, we see those people driving around with our luggage in the back of all those cargo holds. They've built fully autonomous carriers for those. And 
they incredibly smart guys. And what I'll, I'll give them credit for is they looked across the company and said, we know how to build it. We think we have a pretty good handle on how to build funding decks for it, but how the heck do we sell it? Yeah. How do we find customers? And I've been working with them now for about three years. We connect as often as we can. And I just want to be an open book and anything I've learned, mistakes I've made, successes I've had, give it to them. So hopefully they can step over some of those pitfalls, not fall into it themselves, maybe save six months on their, their company or a year and some of the mistakes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's been a blast. Cool. Yeah. And when it comes to, you know, we've talked a little bit about Zonar and, and obviously Visologics. Um, I assume that all four startups weren't created equally and you haven't had the same excitement uh, in, in all of them. Have, have there been any, or I guess maybe I should ask like, why has it been going well seemingly for Visologics and why are you excited um, about the future with Visologics? Selfishly, it, it probably goes back to getting it cracking with my dad when, back when I was 15. And then throughout college, anytime I had time off, he put me right to work. And what I, I really enjoyed was that instant validation of, of the work that you performed. In the software space, you can go months sometimes without receiving validation for all the work you've done. Yeah. You put in 100 hours a week for six months and you don't really get to see what you've done. But man, I'll tell you what, you're sitting there in dirt and you get behind a dozer. You're sitting there with a crew of guys on a construction job. You can see the wall you built. You can see the foundation that, that you've created. And that's pretty dang rewarding. I, I think every man wants to look down and, and see the work they've done with the, the two hands they were given. And that's why I was so dang excited to get back into what Visologics is doing. I think a part of it is I'm just jealous of the guys that actually get to drive equipment every day. They get to wake up, put on a belt, sheath out their hammer and, and, and go beat down some nails. And, and for me to be back in that space with guys that I truly just enjoy, I've never enjoyed a market as much as the construction equipment space, construction vertical market. And the last startup I was at, it was a really stark reminder that you, you better love what you're doing or else, you know, the days will seem like weeks. I think there were times where one day felt like a month at uh, a company that certainly delivered a solution that solved problems, but it, it wasn't where you could look across at, at your day's work and and feel especially proud of it. And you know, it is a logic. I, I get excited to go to sleep on Sundays because that's just me one one minute closer to waking up on a Monday and building Hell great yeah. products, talking to guys that are out there in the field and driving a service truck or rolling down in, in a in a rock truck, moving granite, blowing stuff up in quarries. So big time for me, it, the excitement to be back in a space with guys that I I think I'd, I'd probably want to trade shoes with more days than I wouldn't is a uh, is why I get excited to wake up. Cool. No. Construction industry is fun. I, I wish I knew more about the software industry. I just don't know. I'll be honest with you, Sean. I don't think I have the headspace for it. You, what you what I've what I've seen with people in that industry is just very cool to see their thought process. I'm kind of all over the board to where like I have to physically see things. So yeah. 
no for me on that one, but it's really cool to hear about your success and just, you know, how it came to fruition and, you know, all of that fun things. So no, um, I had, so a couple, you know, a couple other things from when we were talking about as well. So visual visualogics, I was looking on their site earlier. Why is I'm looking on it right now when you have your market specific solutions, right? You have your aerospace, your automotive, your call center, cybersecurity, equipment manufacturing, equipment dealers, and kind of so on. How did you pick those industries? Like, was there certain things within them that had likeness with each other? And you're like, yep, this is kind of a uniform fit for all of them. I think if you read off all those vertical markets, again, you'd, you'd understand the ulcers that our, our director of marketing has. Yep. How challenging it is to go out yep. and find a, an ideal customer profile and, and the buyer personas for six different vertical markets. And then the sub verticals within those, albeit within the same software. And I, I think I, in total transparency, we built these products for the construction equipment industry what we knew the challenges were we had products, we built products to solve those problems. And what we didn't know was that there are a lot of sinuous tissue that connect the construction equipment space with other equipment vertical markets. And we kind of fell backwards into it. I, I wish there was this really cool story that I could share that we did a tremendous amount of market research. And we knew that if we just spent X amount of advertising dollars and created a, digi a digital plan for the commercial restaurant space that we'd succeed. But what happened was we built a great product for a vertical market, solve problems to help connect dealers, manufacturers, and their customers together. If you can connect those three pieces of the economy, that value chain, the OEM that deals directly with their dealership, but also wants to work with the customer, and then the dealership to the customer, which is their lifeblood, and then the customer back to those two, well, then that solves a lot of really big problems. That value chain exists in a lot of other vertical markets besides just construction equipment. Mm -hmm. And we had prospects come to us and say, sounds like you built something really cool for construction equipment. Would it work for the commercial kitchen? And we said, let's, let's figure it out. Let's give you a couple of licenses. Let's try it. We think so because you have a remote defryer that broke down, you're responsible to fix it. You're 40 miles away. Is it more efficient to remotely connect into that down machine with some augmented reality tools and help the customer self fix? Yeah, that sounds a lot like a construction equipment dealership trying to fix a bulldozer. That's a hundred miles away, very expensive to go touch. And if you can help that customer with the bush fix, well, you just save the customer downtime so they can move material. You save the dealership a truck roll, so they don't have to spend a couple hundred dollars to send somebody out there just to determine, oh yeah, you just got to flick this switch. And we found that this is a great use case. I think it's somewhere on our website. Heineken down in Central America, outside of being just a distributor of, of great potables, they also supply the coolers in Central America. So that big Heineken cooler is actually provided by Heineken and their distributors. The distributor is responsible for that cooler to stay cool. And what Heineken came to us and said is, is there a way for us to connect into the owner of that corner market and help them solve that cooler issue without us having to send a technician out? And we said, yeah, we think so. Let's put a QR code on the side of that cooler. 
That way the store owner scans a QR code. They're immediately connected in without an app, without a software download to an expert who can diagnose that machine. So no app, no software to download, no scheduled meeting, no truck roll, just scan a QR code. Now you're connected to an expert. That simple process right there. And the, the, you know, the augmented reality tools are fantastic. It allows the expert agent to draw on the customer's screen to say counterclockwise three times this way or see that red switch, flip that. And they saw a reduction in their service road calls by 70%, 70% reduction. Didn't end up being the greatest long-term expansion model for us because they cut down so many road calls through the uses of our service they didn't need to add any more licenses. Right. But it was it was a great opportunity for us to see that if you build a great tool that solves a universal problem, there's probably tertiary markets that you'll you'll be able to find some successes in. And we're really starting to to find a lot of success in that commercial kitchen space, in retail distribution, outside of just con commercial construction equipment, call centers. So Bosch is is a great global recognized company. They're a tremendous user of our products within I think four or five different call centers that they have for various products that they offer. So it, it's a lot of fun to have a product that has that diversity, but dang, it's a pretty big challenge too, to be able to go out and yeah. find all those people where they live. We're in 16 different countries right now with all of the products. So then you have, it's not only finding the customers in all these different vertical markets, trying to build a succinct message. So when you come to our website, you go, man, these guys are talking to me. We had some pretty high bounce rates initially because we weren't talking to the customers in the right way. They came and they go, nope, wrong guys, not talking to me, don't know what this company is, I'm going to leave. So being flexible enough to recognize you're not going to figure it all out, but maintain access to data and pivot quickly is and has been pretty big key to, to our success and, and ability to not just rely on one vertical market mm -hmm. for success. Is that market research kind of like you explained earlier? Is that, does it become like the same process when you're looking at those verticals? It or does. There, it does. Okay. It does. Yeah. So that's where you start to get in some of the kind of the, let me be polite here. The, uh, the terminology used by venture capitalists, what's your customer acquisition cost? And if you can start to understand what your customer acquisition costs are, what your sales cycle lengths are, what your, your average revenue per customer is, your ARPU, based on those early wins in your, your non-key verticals. So it's nice to say, wow, we won in the commercial kitchen space, is that that's just a one-off. We're not going to spend there. Or you can do what most smart companies do, and you just start to analyze the data start to look at your web traffic, look at your trade shield budget, look at your digital ad spend and say, if we know that the data is true because data can't be manipulated, typically you don't want to, it's just data is data. And you start to see if we invest X in this market, we'll see expansion based on our customer acquisition costs, our digital ad spend, our sales cycle length, our average revenue per customer. Man, it makes sense, let's go into this market. Or those guys are just a one-off Let's not focus on that market. We'll support the heck out of that customer. They're a great customer, but there's not a lot of other customers that look like them. So let's not go deviate six months of our product roadmap, hire sales reps, focus BDR attention on that, digital ad spending, 
And I think those are some of the tools that you pick up when you grab a mentor is somebody to say, here's what to focus on. Just because you got one customer doesn't mean there's 10 more that look like it or a thousand more that look like it. Do a little bit of research, test around with a little bit of ad spend, start to understand what your cost to acquire a customer is, what's your, you know, your general profit margin on that product? Does it sustain over multiple customers? And if all those answers are yes, well, then you go for it. Sweet. It's cool to cool to kind of understand that process. Yeah. And as you're talking about these different markets, um, I, I just keep reminding myself that this is startup number four and you just, you move so quickly in this world. And uh, one thing that uh, I wrote down actually is um, how do you, with your mindset and your mentality, how do you stay focused on Visologics with, while trying to put the blinders on with other shiny objects of other businesses? And, but also you, I'm sure you kind of filter them in and out because can they be useful in Visologics or a current company, but yeah, I guess, how do you keep the blinders on and avoid yeah. the shiny object syndrome? Yeah. Uh, for me and I, and, and I think this is probably just part of the, the upbringing that I had, I uh, was, I won't go too far into it because it wasn't a question that was asked, but it does deliver some of, some of the, the reasoning behind the answer for the actual question I was born on a military base at the time. It was actually West Germany before the Berlin Wall fell. So both parents were in the military, bounced around military bases. So there was uh, understanding from an early age of, of duty and honor and commitment. And for me, that, that shiny object syndrome doesn't really come into play because I make a covenant with everybody that I work with that we've made a commitment and my commitment yeah. is I'm not going to fail. And the only way I can't fail is to just do this a hundred hours a week. And I've got an incredible wife that believes in everything that we do and, and recognizes the hard work that it takes and the extra hours and all the travel and the canceled vacations, the time away from kids events, but it's all for that covenant that she and I made. And then the one that I make to the people that I'm blessed to work with. And that, that may be simplistic, but for me, that's the, that, that duty and honor and, and commitment that if you stand around a room and you tell people, you come with me, we're going to succeed, you damn well better succeed, or you, you better not fall off the, off the rails and, and try to exit early and leave everybody else holding your bag of promises. Yeah, whatever you start, you finish, right? And I think so often entrepreneurs can lose that sight, especially probably in the startup world where they just have an idea, they get it rolling, and then they almost abandon their team and everyone that's been pushing them to to get there. But um, would you say typically in that world, uh, the end goal is an acquisition? Uh, what would be some other options, I guess, in the startup world um, besides an acquisition? Well, I, to your earlier feedback, I'd say just a general rule of kind of wisdom to pass along is I think, and I, it, it's happened to me as well. And you just got to endeavor through it, push through it, but there's absolutely burnout that occurs yeah. at any, any employee level at a startup. You grind and you grind and maybe you had an idea, you know, I'm going to do this for three years and then we'll get acquired. Or I'm going to do this for two years and we'll get acquired. 
whatever number you associated with exiting the company, just double it. You think it's going to be three years, it's going to be six. You think yeah. it's going to be five, it's going to be 10. That's the reality. You have to have that mental renegotiation quite often to say, man, I thought it was three, but I probably should have bet on six. And I guarantee it'll be closer to six and it will three. And that helps that mental health of not feeling as if you failed, yeah. that your burnout isn't validated because sure it is. You're working hard, you're delivering, you want to see the results. But two years ago, the company you're at didn't exist. There wasn't a there was no product. So there is time associated with success in startups. Uh, but outside of that, just trying to pass along, I think kind of a finalization of that question. I'd be lying if I didn't say that the goal for people to start companies is to have them acquired. You don't, you shouldn't build your company with a buyer in mind because you don't know the future of that potential customer. And I've, I've met entrepreneurs that have built a product specifically for one larger organization that they perceived would buy it. And more often than not, they have enough resources to build the exact same product that you've built. You don't have IP around it. Why would they not just take your information, sign up for a one or a two year contract with your product, internally build it, and then utilize it much cheaper for them than to pay a, you know, a 10 to 20 X multiple for acquisition of, of, your product. So <clears throat> you bet. We're all, I would think, ingrained with that great American red-blooded ingenuity to build something only to sell it for, to somebody else for a, for, a, for a big paycheck at the end. Kind of that manifest destiny. I'm going to be the first guy out of the wagon and I'm going to put my flag in the ground and it's mine and I'm going to build on it and build a farm or build a ranch and make money. Not too different than that. I think there's a whole bunch of fun-loving cowboys that are entrepreneurs in the startup space and probably picking up that, that wanderlust from the, from the old West. And, and just, a, I, I would just say it, you build it to be profitable. You build it to solve customers' problems. And if you can do that and, and be profitable and solve real problems and have a great team and have products that are protected by IP, buyers will come. Thinking of like, Luke in the excavation space, Shauna, as you were mentioning, you know, obviously, you know, with you start a company with the intent to sell it someday in my space, Luke, I'm thinking of like, okay, why would somebody just buy an excavation company? But then on the flip side of it, why not build it and then build your team members in it to continue on after, you know, that's in my head, that's kind of a way to build it, to sell it as well. You know, you might not have to physically sell it to them, but you can, you know, you can make a retirement off it. You can, you can maintain ownership, you know, whatever that case, but at least that team coming up behind you could kind of take on the legacy as well. Yeah, Luke. And on that point too, it's really building a legacy. Like what are you going to pass down to your kids or your grandkids or whoever can take it over? Is it just a mess of paper invoices and things that you did your way? Or is it systems built into a business that is going to be a gift and not a curse to whoever takes it over? And yeah, so even if you're not selling it, but who is the next successor of this business and who is going to keep this thing rolling? Absolutely. Yeah, what a great point. I, I think we're all, all of our thoughts and, and advice and experiences are, are biased by our own life. And my life has been spent in technology startups, except for the first one, Bonington Construction. And that was built to be the legacy hand down. And it just 
never really scaled that way. And, and great point, Luke, on every business isn't a, isn't software. Every business isn't robotics hardware or in, in vehicle telematics data that were specifically built and scaled with the intent for, for resale and acquisition. It's a, it's a legacy of selling it to your sons and your daughters and, and your employees for ownership. And I don't know that that could be, I don't know there's any bigger reward than that, being able to effectively hand over the keys to a, to a, a legacy for them to then maintain. Mm -hmm. That's cool to think about. Very cool. Um, um, yeah, Sean, thank you for, you know, just your insight and then also your knowledge that you shared with us as well. I know I've got two pages full of just notes that I took for my personal gain. So thank you for that. Yeah, I'm sure you'll send me an, an invoice in the mail for those. So I'll, I'll be waiting for that, but <laughs> nothing's free in this I'll take, world. I'll take bush lights. It's all right. I'll say Perfect. that again. There we go. Um, Sean, yeah. as we uh, as we're moving forward here, I know we're talking before the show of just when Luke and I are gonna catch you at one of the next trade shows and things like that. But um, for anyone listening, like where can they find you or anyone at your company, you know, to learn more to talk to you? You going to any shows coming up? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a busy year for us. Uh, I know, just kind of off the top of my head, I've got a uh, speaking. A panel at the AEMP shift conference in, in Phoenix this quarter. Next week, yeah, there we go. Next week, I'll be in Las Vegas at the AED Association of Equipment Dealerships show. We'll be at Mine Expo. There's another show called Cefesa, C-F-E-S-A, that's commercial restaurant space. We'll be there. I've got a, a roundtable event at the for the, the Pitt and Quarry published magazine. They do an annual roundtable event with some uh, business owners and <clears throat> a lot of quarry management leadership. So I'll be down there in February as well. And I think we'll be at World of Concrete at the same time. So I think overall, there's probably 12 shows this year that we'll be at. Those are the ones that I think we've got handled for the next three or four months. So busy, Man. busy schedule. Yeah, you're you're starting to list all of them off, and all of a sudden you said, "Yeah, in February," and I was like, "Oh, we're still in quarter one here, so <laughs> we're uh, that's busy." A lot of travel these upcoming months. Holy cow, that's exciting. Good yeah. stuff, though. Um, yeah, I know Luke and I are excited to you know we're going to more and more shows now as as kind of the dirt bags is getting rolling here, and so it's been a lot of fun, and uh, you know we can't thank you enough for all that you've done for us, and then also. Uh, just being on the show, I, I love how this episode went and what we got to dive into. And like Luke said, I mean, his pages of notes, I think I have even more. Um, so I think there's Always a competition be a... with this guy. I'll tell you what. Yeah, I, I have three pages. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I, I just think there's going to be a lot more to come even after this episode. Um, a lot of follow up, a lot more as our listeners are diving into this. So we're excited to keep the ball rolling with you and, uh, you know, continue to dive in. Yeah. yeah, you guys have been great. You guys put out just a great show. So informative. I think you're talking to the right people. You're really helping expose the marketplace to different ideas and different voices, but ultimately with the same focus of just helping people yeah. and really enjoy that. I don't know if this ultimately helps anybody, but if there's just one person that goes, I like that, then it's been a 
one of the, the better hours that I've, I've spent in a long time. So if I had a hat, I'd, I'd tip it to both of you guys. If I had a drink, I'd cheers you with it, but for nothing else, thank you guys for the time. This has been, this has been great. And maybe we'll do it again sometime later in the year. Look forward to it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We've got Sean Bonington. Uh, we appreciate you, man. The man, the myth, the dirt bag. See you guys.